0: But thank you, Harry, for that very much, and it's a great pleasure to be here tonight. I've I've just been made aware, or about an hour ago, that this clashes with one of the largest events ever in the life of Ulster, the fireworks. I've just discovered it tonight. If I'd known Ken, I would never have come over. But that's not true, actually. I'm so grateful to Ken Nelson here, uh, who's done such a tremendous amount of work in putting this weekend together. And uh, some of you were at the mill Uh, last night. It was only last night, wasn't it? Got a lot older since then, uh, when we had two very special meetings there. And it's a great joy to be here tonight and to be speaking on this particular subject of why I believe the Bible. One of the things that concerns me about this, and I was talking to somebody uh, from England on the telephone about it uh, yesterday, was the fact that so many people who regularly attend church are nevertheless so uh, ignorant so deficient in their knowledge of what the Bible is actually saying. There's a lovely story, I hope it's apocryphal, of a man who um, left church after one service and the minister came out of the door shaking hands, they do. And uh, this man came to the minister and said, I really want to thank you for this morning's sermon. I've learned something today that I never knew before. And the minister said, well, what was that? He said, I never knew that Dan and Beersheba were two cities. I thought they were husband and wife. Like, like Sodom and Gomorrah. So it shows you that his knowledge of the Bible wasn't exactly spot on. And uh, perhaps that are many of you, I feel the same. I've studied this book now for 60 years and two weeks, and uh, I still find that I, there are things about which I feel myself woefully ignorant, and I'm sure that if you were absolutely honest, you would say, yes, I'm not sure that my knowledge of the Bible is exactly as great as I would like it to be. Why well, I believe the Bible is a good title because there's never been any book in the whole of history that has been so loved and so hated, so revered and so reviled. Both sides of the spectrum. Certainly no book in all of history has been so viciously and venomously uh, attacked. Some of the translators of the Bible over the years have been imprisoned and tortured and indeed uh, put to death. And over the centuries, millions of copies of the Bible have been burned. Uh, I have a great interest in uh, Albania which was the world's first atheistic state and when the communists took over Albania, communism of course being an atheistic belief system uh, Bibles were burned, churches were closed, Christians were forbidden to meet uh, together Uh, the Word God was taken out of the Albanian dictionary and there was even a case of a man being imprisoned because he wrapped his fish and chips in a newspaper in which the photograph of the atheistic uh, president of Albania, Enver Hoxha, appeared. For a thousand years, believe it or not, in the United Kingdom, it was forbidden to read the Bible. In 1401, a law was passed which made it illegal to own a Bible. In 1401. And the penalty for doing so was sometimes no less than death. And of course there are still countries in the world where it is illegal to own a Bible and absolutely forbidden. It's a criminal offence. And so whereas people could come to England and live in England carrying a copy of the Koran under their arm and no official at the border would stop them or question them, that would be perfectly okay. If you went to some countries in the world today with a Bible under your arm you certainly wouldn't get past the airport and you might find yourself in prison in no time at all. Now why should that be the case? There are certainly millions of people who would say it's not even worth opening the Bible and others who deride it Uh, Very widely. Richard Dawkins is arguably the best known atheist in the world today, and he has said, for example, the only difference between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction, whereas the Gospels are ancient fiction. Uh, I'm often told, I've been told many, many times over the years, that it's no good quoting the Bible at me because I don't believe the Bible. Having a conversation with somebody and uh, eventually i don't think you should jump straight in but eventually you say well let me tell you what the bible says here and they might interrupt you even and say look no good quoting the bible to me i simply don't believe the bible now the way to respond to that uh, is of course to say well tell me why you don't believe the bible and if i can insert this as it were in parenthesis and what i uh, plan to say tonight uh, one of the very best things you can if you were a christian and you're witnessing to someone who is not a Christian, you're talking to them about the Christian faith, one of the very best things you can do is to ask questions. Now let me give you an example, and this isn't part of what I was intending to say. If someone were to say to you, well, I'm an atheist, I beg of you not to say, you shouldn't be an atheist, the Bible says, forget that. What you should say is, why are you an atheist? How long have you been an atheist? What made you become an atheist? What convinces you atheism is a good thing? Give me five reasons why you believe God doesn't exist. And in no time at all, you'll be on the offensive and they'll be on the defensive. So the best, one of the best pieces of advice I can give for personal witnessing is learn to ask questions. And don't feel that you're six feet above contradiction, all the answers to their questions, ask questions. And so... Uh, If people say to me, well, it's no good quoting the Bible, I don't believe it. My question is, well, why don't you believe the Bible? And I want to go through some of the reasons people would give for saying, well, I don't believe the Bible. And the first is, they might say, well, science has disproved it. We now have in a a modern, scientific, 21st century Uh, We can do the most amazing things scientifically, and science has disproved the Bible. Well, my friends, that's not only not true, it's impossible for it to be true. Science is the ongoing process of learning truth about the natural world. Let me try to illustrate this. Here's the natural world, and this is the supernatural world. Science is the ongoing process of discovering truth in the natural world. We should be grateful for it. The more science we have, the better. The better scientists we have, the better. And the better science we have, the better. But it's a, it's a process. It's not a finished product. And uh, you would be able to quote, perhaps as well as I can, instances where uh, science has said, and that's a great phrase, science says, uh, whatever, and then 10 years later, 20 years, 50 years later, it says, no, science now says... And what was said 10, 20, 50 years earlier is now laid aside, and we're told, no, that's not actually the case. This is now what science says. And to say that science has disproved the Bible uh, is simply nonsense. And the reason is it can't reach into the supernatural. Let me give you an illustration that turns things the other way around. If you were crossing the Atlantic uh, in an ocean liner... And in the middle of the night, you couldn't sleep, and you said, Well, I'm going to take a torch and walk up onto the deck and just have a wander around. And you do, and then at some point you say, I wonder what the bed of the Atlantic Ocean looks like. So you switch your torch on, lean over the rail, and look down. Now you cannot see the bed of the Atlantic Ocean. That doesn't mean it's not there, it means that your torch doesn't have the reach, it cannot reach that far. So let me illustrate again, science cannot reach that far. It cannot reach the supernatural. It is, in other words, it has limitations. In 1861, the French Academy of Science, uh, one of the most prestigious scientific organizations of its day, listed 51 scientific, quote, facts, unquote, that showed the Bible could not be trusted. Today, and I'm only talking uh, back in 1861, today... Modern science says that every one of those 51, quote, facts, unquote, is in fact wrong. They are not facts at all. And the Bible remains exactly as it always has. Sir Isaac Newton would be acknowledged by many people as the father of modern science. And Sir Isaac Newton said this, and I quote, that the Bible is a rock from which all the hammers of criticism have never chipped a single fragment. So a person who says science has disproved the Bible is really talking nonsense of the highest order. Doesn't even understand, I think, what science is, and let alone being able to prove the point he's trying to make. Secondly, there are those who would say, well, the Bible is irrelevant and out of date. And I hear it all the time, and it's so easy to say, well, the Bible's an old book, even if it comes in a very modern uh, binding. You know, the most recent parts were written 2,000 years ago, and we're in the 21st century now. It's it's out of date and irrelevant. Is that the case? Is it really out of date? It's old, sure. But is it out of date and irrelevant? For example, it has a great deal to say, directly or indirectly about marriage and divorce and remarriage and the breakdown of personal relationships and alcoholism and substance abuse and stress and depression. Are those things irrelevant today? Do you know of nobody who is affected by some of those things and some by more than one? It has a great deal to say about uh, damaging emotions such as anger and guilt and fear, and doubt, and anxiety. Those things are irrelevant today, don't we know of people who are affected by those things? It has a a great deal to say also, it condemns dishonesty, immorality, arrogance, greed, selfishness, and obscenity. Those things irrelevant today, don't we know, situations in which those have a very large part to play? It addresses issues such as violence and murder and racism and war and natural disasters all over the world. Is that an irrelevant subject today? Is nobody affected or interested in those subjects today? It sets out very clear principles that relate to subjects such as abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, human cloning, and other forms of genetic Engineering are those irrelevant subjects today when in the UK alone we kill hundreds of unborn babies every day. It has a great deal of teaching on how to uh, establish stable family life, the proper enjoyment of sex, employers' and employees' responsibilities, social justice, business integrity and personal finances. Are those things irrelevant today? Nobody affected by those issues or touched by them uh, today. It teaches how to cope with poverty and sickness and rejection and loneliness and pain and bereavement and other personal traumas. None of those things relevant in the 21st century. And to quote directly, it also points the way to experience love, joy, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Those things are irrelevant today. Would we not all benefit by experiencing those today? It talks about animal welfare and the care of the environment. It tells us about our duty to help the bereaved, the sick, the disabled, the poor, the homeless and the dispossessed, especially when those in need are widows and orphans. Nothing could be more relevant in the social climate in which we live today. Uh, It has one chapter alone, tucked way back towards the beginning of the Old Testament. And believe it or not, this one chapter, Deuteronomy 22, it deals with these subjects. Lost property, neighborliness, transvestism, ecology, health and safety, agriculture and horticulture, marriage, relationships, adultery, and rape. So to call the Bible irrelevant is simply ridiculous. In fact of all the arguments that could be raised against the Bible, all the reason why people would say I don't believe the Bible, why should I believe the Bible, this is to me the most ridiculous. And then there are those who would say well it's full of mistakes. Now that's something you may have heard and you may yet hear if you haven't heard it already. Uh, Well I don't, why should I read the Bible it's full of mistakes now remember my, my this is a Blanchard law when somebody says that you, you ask a question you're going to say if it's full of mistakes show me a dozen I promise you they'll be on the back foot immediately because the chances are it's almost certain in fact they've never read the Bible from cover to cover and what they've remembered they've forgotten and they cannot put their finger on a dozen mistakes but you see, if it's full, if they were to say well I've found one mistake in it that's a different matter, they may be able to point out something that they say is a mistake now you've got to have studied the Bible well enough to be able to show that they're wrong, but that's another matter, but if they say it's full of mistakes, you say well look it's full, just show me a dozen there must be thousands, I assume you're saying there are thousands, you show me uh, a dozen for example uh, historically, the Bible is not a history book, but it does have a great deal of history in it and there's not a single historical statement in the Bible that has been proved to be wrong. Let me give you a, a really striking example from history. A man called Sir William Ramsey, one of the world's greatest ever archaeologists. He was trained in a liberal school in Germany uh, to believe that the Bible really couldn't be trusted. The New Testament was largely mythology And, for example, the book of Acts was not written by Luke, which it clearly says uh, that it was. And so he is brought up, taught and trained. Look, you can't trust the New Testament as history. Uh, For example, the book of Acts was not written by Luke, although it says it was written by Luke and so forth. Well, in the course of his training, he went out to the Middle East and did a great deal of field work. And as he did this and made certain discoveries, he gradually began to see that he'd been fed a can of worms. That This wasn't, in fact, the case. And I'll give you one illustration of what I mean. Uh, Luke says at one point, and I won't name the town or the place, that this particular town is, and I'll use a phrase with which we're familiar here in the UK, this town is in that county. And he was taught and took it all in But we know that that town is not in that county, it's in that county. Therefore, Luke was wrong. And once you find that kind of error in a a writer, supposedly writing history, I can see why you wouldn't trust anything he's written. So Luke says it's in that county, we know it's not, therefore Luke is wrong, therefore he can't be trusted, let's move on. However... The more they delved and discovered and looked at records, they discovered that what happened was the counties were changed after Luke had written the book of Acts. And that in fact, when Luke wrote the book of Acts, that town was in that county. So Luke was absolutely correct after all. And Ramsey, to his great credit, changed his mind. And he discovered that Luke was so meticulously accurate that he said, and I quote him, Luke should be placed among the, along with the very greatest of historians. Oh, and talking of history, one of the remarkable things about the Bible is that it, great, it writes a great deal of history hundreds of years before those events happened. We call it, of course, prophecy. And there's a great deal of prophecy in the Bible, a huge amount of prophecy, whereas, uh, well, in fact, 30% of the Bible is prophecy. And incidentally, there's not a single prophecy in the Quran if you wanted to compare the two. And so many of those uh, prophecies, hundreds of them in the Old Testament, have, uh, most of those have been already fulfilled to the letter, And none of them can we set aside and say that hasn't come about because, of course, we've not yet reached the end of history. And not one of those prophecies has been proved to be false. For example, there are scores of prophecy about the person of Jesus Christ. And they tell us so much about him. For example, the town in which Messiah, the promised deliverer, was to be born was Bethlehem. But there are two Bethlehems. And the Old Testament and the New Testament together get it exactly right. It was Bethlehem Ephrathah was the town in which Jesus was born. It speaks about his lifestyle. It speaks about his social status. It speaks about the words that he was to say. It speaks about both his popularity and then his... The, exactly... The reverse, his unpopularity. It speaks about his death. The very way that he's going to be executed, which a way that was unknown at the time the prophecy was made. It even spoke of the company that he would be keeping when he was executed. And it even said that he would rise again from the dead. Now, I remember being in a school in the north of England on one occasion. It was a girls' school, I have to say that, ladies. It just happens to be the truth. And uh, there was uh, one girl there who had a reputation, apparently, for... Um, attacking or criticizing visiting speakers. And I was a visiting speaker. And I had spoken, as far as I recall, the subject was the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, I asked if there were any questions or comments. She stood up and said, well, I mean, he was a very smart guy. And he knew his Old Testament and these prophecies about Messiah. And so he deliberately went about to fulfill those prophecies. So he went to certain places and he said certain things and he got in some of the trouble with the authorities, so that he was going to be executed and on and on and on. And so she sat down with a great satisfied smirk on her face and said, so there we are. He wasn't Messiah. He just knew what Messiah was going to be like, the things he was going to do. So he went around and did them and then everybody believed he was the Messiah. And I kidded her for a little bit and said, that's very interesting. Hmm. That really is, you obviously thought about that very carefully. Could I just say one thing um, It's prophesied that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Can you tell me how he arranged that? And uh, she was smart enough to keep her mouth shut and not to say another word. So to say that the Bible is full of mistakes is simply nonsense. And then fourthly, people would say well, it 's too negative. You know, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. It's very interesting when people want to criticize the Bible, they lapse into 17th century language. Uh, that's just another way of make, making it sound old-fashioned. Uh, but even if they use modern language, and say, it's full of you shall not do this, you shall not do that. And we want something positive and constructive in our lives. Well, I would have to confess... That eight of the Ten Commandments begin with, Thou shalt not, or you shall not. My question would be this, what's wrong with that? Imagine that you are sick, you have symptoms you don't like very much, you go to the doctor and he says, well I'm glad you've came, because I've got some bad news for you, but I've also got some good news. The bad news is, you do have a very rare and very dangerous disease. And untreated, it would kill you. But, would you believe, uh, some medication has just been discovered, and you can now take this medication, and you take it faithfully and as directed, and you will co- be completely healed. So he writes out the prescription, you go to the chemist, and you get your little bottle of pills, and it says that there are 30 pills here. Uh, you, must stay, you must do no work for 30 days, and you must take one per day for 30 days, and you will be healed. And then in large letters, do not exceed the stated dose. That's very negative. Do not exceed the stated dose. And you're such an important person. And the work can't possibly do without you. And the thought of you being away from work for 30 days, the whole company would collapse. And so you say, well, I'll tell you what, if 30 pills are going to cure me, I'll just take them all now. So you get a big glass of water and you take the 30 pills and swallow the lot. And they bury you next week. What's wrong with saying do not do this? The reason pills say do not do that is it's for your good that they're saying do not. So there's nothing wrong about negative. There's a difference between negative and positive. Of course there is. I'm not stupid. Um, But there's nothing wrong with saying do not if do not prevents you from doing something that would be harmful. For example, the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. That's very negative, isn't it? But it preserves human life. Do not commit adultery. That's very negative in this age of free sexual expression. But it preserves the sanctity of marriage. Do not steal. That's very negative. But it safeguards our property. You will not bear false witness. That's very negative. But it safeguards personal reputations. And in any case, the Bible has just as many do this, do that, do the other thing as it has do not do this, do not do that and do not do the other thing. And here's the point that governs them both. When God says in his word, do not do something it's because if you do it, it will harm you. And when God says do something it's because doing it will benefit you. So I just don't get the argument at all. Uh, because the Bible has a lot of do not do this, well then, uh, it's just so negative, I don't want anything to do with it. It would affect my life badly. All that God says in his word, negative and positive, is there to help us to lead fuller and richer and better lives. And here's a fifth. Well, it doesn't work. I mean... It's just so old-fashioned and out of date. It doesn't apply in today's fast-moving modern society. It simply doesn't work. The fact of the matter is that there's no book, no piece of literature that man has framed in all of human history that has such a powerful impact on society and on individuals. As far as society is concerned, for example, when the social revolution uh, swept uh, the Western world in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was mostly driven by people who were powerfully influenced by the Bible. For example, William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery, the Earl of Shaftesbury, And the great help he brought to those who were mentally ill, Elizabeth Fry and prison reform, Thomas Bernardo and housing destitute children, Jean-Henri Dunant and the founding of the International Red Cross. All of these men were powerfully influenced by the teaching of the Bible. So to say it doesn't work is to fly in the face of history and of facts. And listen to this too, going right back to speaking of individuals now from the pages of the New Testament. Paul writes one of his letters to a church at uh, Corinth. And they were a pretty mixed bunch. The church at Corinth had its problems, just as I guess every church, of his honest, has certain problems. Because, uh, you know, the, the Christian church isn't a finishing school. It's a hospital for patients who know that in themselves mm, they're all sick and they need help. And so Paul wrote to the church at uh, Corinth, and in the course of it, he said this. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, incidentally, Paul, therefore, wasn't what we call a universalist. A universalist is someone who says, well, you know, above all, and I was saying this in the middle last night, God is love and it really at the end of the day it really doesn't matter how we live and what we believe and how we behave at the end of the day god's love will overcome everything else and he'll sweep his arms around the whole of humanity and gather us all into heaven and we all live happily ever after well paul didn't believe that nonsense and he said don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of god don't be deceived neither, and listen to the list, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he lays that down very clearly. Listen to the next words. And that is what some of you were. He looked out on the congregation at Corinth and said, Some of you were thieves and greedy and drunkards and slanderers and swindlers and immoral and adulterers and all the rest of it, but you've changed. Something has happened to you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So to say the Bible doesn't work is simply nonsense. And we don't have to look back to the 18th century or go right back to the New Testament but there are millions, and I don't exaggerate, millions of people in the world today who would add their testimony to the Bible's testimony that its influence has made them better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better employees, better employers, better friends, better people. I have met in the course of 52 years now in in full-time Christian ministry... Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who have given me their testimony that God has changed their lives through the teaching of the word of God. You will know, having come through the troubles in this part of the world, you have met people, you may have, I certainly have, those whose hands were stained with blood and who are now among the most godly and upright people in our society. Say the Bible doesn't work, is nonsense. Let me tell you this very remarkable story. Uh, A friend of mine helped in the running of a a Youth for Christ rally in Bristol. A number of years ago, many years ago now. Um, At one Saturday night rally there was a young man came in with a bottle of beer in each pocket and the contents of several other bottles already inside him, uh, trying to make a nuisance of himself. Uh, But he was quiet and down, and eventually the the rally went on. And at the end of the rally, my friend, who was the organizer of it, was the last of the group uh, running the rally to leave. And as he did so, he found this man sitting on the steps out there of the Colston Hall in Bristol. And so we sat down and talked to him. And the man seemed to have sobered up and to have been listening very carefully to what was going on in the rally. And they talked for a very long time, and my friend left the man feeling in his own heart, now we can make mistakes about this, but he would have left saying, I really think this man has become a Christian. Now, it's dangerous to go around proclaiming there and then, this man has become a Christian. Better to wait and see what happens afterwards and see whether it's genuine. However, so he left him feeling feeling in his own heart, I really do think this man has changed. Well, the man concerned got up and walked down to the square at Bristol and uh, put his key in the door of his car to drive it home and suddenly thought, I mustn't do this. I haven't paid my car tax. Now, he didn't believe in car tax, so he never paid it. All I know is, if I didn't pay my tax, 24 hours later I'd have half the police force of Surrey on my tail. Um, But he just didn't believe, he never did. And he said, I can't, that would be illegal. As a Christian, I can't drive that car. So he walked home. Long way home. Got home very late. His wife was already in bed. He woke her up and said, um, I need a suit. I need, where's my best suit? And she said, what in the white... Do you know what time it is? What do you want a suit for? He said, I'm going to church in the morning. She said, you've been drinking. He said, yes, I've been drinking and I'm sober and I'm going to church in the morning. Where's my suit? Got the suit out and he said, I need a shirt. I need a clean shirt. Make sure I've got a clean shirt for the morning. So, bless her heart, she got a clean shirt for him. He said, I need a tie. So you know this wasn't a story that happened last week. Um, I need a tie. The only tie they could find was one with a naked woman on the front. He said, that'll do. And so the next morning he got up, put on his suit, his clean shirt, and the naked woman draped across his tie, and went out and waited for a bus. Got on the bus, looked left and right until he saw evangelical church, got out and went inside. It was a brethren assembly. And four of the elders died immediately. <laughs> no, i just added that bit. But anyway. And there it was. When I met him, he was an evangelist. God had called him to spend the whole of his life in preaching the gospel. And if you had said to him, and see, the great thing is, I don't know who you are tonight, you're not wearing labels saying, I'm a Christian, I'm thinking of becoming a Christian, I'm a skeptic, I don't really believe the Bible. You may be any one of those things, and I, haven't, I don't know, and I couldn't care less. But you may be thinking, yeah, it really, it doesn't work. You ask this man whether it worked or not, and you would be ashamed at the answer he was able to give you. Of course it works. And nothing else works like it. There's not a government that can do that for you. Not a philosophy that can do that for you. There's not a religion who can do that for you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can. Through the teaching of God's word. And there's never been a book in all of history that has had such a powerful impact for good in the lives of millions of people all over the world. Nor should that surprise us. Because this book makes the claim that no other book can make in the same credible way that it is the living and enduring word of God. And again, if you're here on the fringes of Christian things, maybe, or just here out of interest because the title was one that intrigued you, you may say, well, look, what actually, in a nutshell, is the message of this book? It's actually a library, as most of you will know. It's actually 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, written by different people. Uh, It has nearly 1,200 chapters and 31,000 verses. And incidentally, the chapters and the verses weren't put there to begin with. They were added later by editors. Some of them are very helpful and some of them were obviously put in on a Friday afternoon or when the editor had had an argument with his wife. But that's neither here nor there. Um, But that's how big it is. And if you say, well what is the central, what is the message of the Bible in one sentence? Here is an interesting thing, and it's a fluke. It happens that the central message in count the, count all 31,000 verses, the middle verse is Psalm 118 in verse 8. Now that's a fluke. That was just decided by editors. They said, right, we'll call this verse 8. Let me tell you what it says. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. If you were to say to me, John, what's the what's the message of the Bible? That's one of the ways I could answer you with that one sentence. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Now there are two things there, and uh, or oh, the first is negative and the second is positive. And uh, so let me take them in that order. And the first thing it says is, man's a failure. The psalm was written at a time when the writer and his people were surrounded by enemies they were in great physical danger and they realized that left to themselves and they tried everything they knew they just could not escape they were utterly failures and were in great danger as a result and the bible says that about us as a whole mankind as a whole and this is to go back on something i was saying at the mill last night God was created in, sorry, excuse me, man was created in the image of God. He was created perfect. And then sin came into the world, and like a fatal disease, it swept through the whole of the human race, and has been transmitted down through countless generations. So that the Bible's verdict on all of humanity is this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there are two tenses in that sentence and this won't be too difficult I promise all have sinned is in the past tense so you have sinned every one of you individually I have sinned the best person you know has sinned the finest person in the world has sinned that's in the past tense we've got previous every one of us this past week could be bad enough But we've got previous. All of us have sinned. Not one of us has kept God's law perfectly. Right. The rest of the sentence is in the present tense. All have sinned, and I'll elaborate just to show you how the tense works out. All have sinned, and we continue to come short of the glory of God. We do. The very best thing you did today falls short of the glory of God. Nothing you have ever done in your life was so good, so wonderful, so beautiful, so generous, so kind, so thoughtful, so humble, that you could say, God couldn't have done better than that. So all of us have sinned, that's our record, and we do fall short of the glory of God. Now that puts us in big trouble. Because God, as I was saying again last night, uh, God has zero tolerance of sin, and therefore God is righteously angry, doesn't, hasn't blown his top, hasn't gone over the top, uh, isn't lost in a fearsome, unjustified rage. But God is righteously angry at sinners and at sin. And if we continue as we are, left to ourselves, we will face God's eternal judgment. We will appear before a holy God who has said that nothing unclean can enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's no good trusting in our religion or our respectability or our record or anything at all. Because in the Bible's language is pretty straightforward, pretty basic stuff here. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. So the very best things that we've ever done, if we present them to God and say, well, that should get me in surely, it's as if we presented him with an oily, dirty, filthy rag and said, is that good enough? If you were called to give account to God today, where would you stand? If this were to be your last day of life on earth and you were to stand before a God who knows everything that you've thought, said, and done, has said that no unclean thing will ever enter heaven, what would your chances be? What about your pride or your dishonesty or your impure thoughts or your greed or your envy or your critical spirit? The first and great commandment is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You haven't done that, nor have I. Left to ourselves, I'll emphasize those words again, left to ourselves, we are in deep, deep trouble. So man's a failure. And we are human beings, and we're failures. But the second thing he says is that God is a savior. It is better to take refuge in God than to trust in that. Refuge is a good word. It's the word you'd use about a shelter. It's as if there's a great storm. The storm of God's anger is hanging over us, and we need a shelter. I recall being in the United States preaching on one particular year, and Hurricane Irene hit the eastern seaboard of the United States. People were warned in advance. They have a great weather forecasting system there, and they were... Uh, warned to leave their homes and go miles inland and to be safe. Many people did and some didn't. And those who didn't were swept to their deaths. It's as if we already have uh, the storm of God's anger hanging over us and we will face the moment when that storm will break upon us if we don't take refuge. And here's the, uh, the wonderful thing, the best thing that I could ever tell you is this, that the refuge is God himself. It's not even as if God says, well, look, I have provided a refuge over there, and that's where you must go. Follow me carefully. God himself is the refuge. He has provided the refuge in himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners. He lived the perfect life that you and I haven't done. And he then died in the place of people like you and me, bearing in his own body and spirit the penalty that we deserve. Or as the Bible puts it, Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Everything the Bible means when it speaks about the eternal punishment for sin, Jesus bore in his own body and spirit when he died on the cross. And he did it not because of his sin, but because of ours. And we know that uh, God the Father accepted that sacrifice in our place because on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, having conquered our worst enemy. And he's alive today and offers a refuge. He is the refuge for all who will come to him and trust him, confess their sin to him, call upon him to save them. And that is what the Bible is all about. And uh, it is powerfully relevant in this life that we we have a right relationship with God. And I spoke about that so much last night in terms of, of grief and sorrow and pain and things going wrong in our lives. Hugely relevant that we have God as our refuge in this life. And of course, powerfully and eternally relevant that we have him for our refuge in the life to come. I spoke last night about the death of my wife, and I've been reminded of that uh, today. If you were to go to Epsom Cemetery, about three miles from where I live, at the very top of the cemetery is uh, the grave in which my wife's body lies and where mine will also relatively soon lie. Beautiful headstone with her name, Joyce Sylvia Blanchard. The date of her birth, 2nd of December, 1933, the date of her death, 17th of February, nearly five years ago. And then a nice big blank at the bottom with room for my name, my date of birth, and my date of death. And in between these words, with Christ, which is far better. And everybody who passes that grave, both now and when I'm laid there, will hear me preaching. And that's why I put it there. I don't want to stop preaching when I die. And so uh, I'll still be preaching God's word with Christ, which is far better. Now, I don't know what your plans are or what you will make those plans to be when the time comes for you to die. You may decide to be cremated. You may decide to be buried. But for the sake of illustration, allow me to say this, that on your grave, there could be your name, your date of birth, your date of death, And there are two possible sentences that could be put. One of which would be true. One of these things will be true of you one day after you've died. It will be. This isn't guesswork now. One of these things will be true. Either with Christ, which is far better. Better than anything you could ever imagine. Better than anything you have ever experienced. Better than anything you could ever get your head around. Better than anything that has ever engaged your emotions. Better. With Christ, which is not just better, far better. Or, this could be written. And it's the only alternative, without Christ, which is far worse. Worse than anything you have ever experienced. Any pain you've ever borne any sorrow that's ever been yours, any grief that's ever struck you, worse than anything you could ever imagine, worse than anything that has ever uh, wrecked and ravished your emotions without Christ, which is far worse. So my friend, when you come to die, make sure that all you have to do is die and that nothing needs to be put right. Because you've got right with God through putting your faith in Jesus Christ. The living word, whose story, whose message, whose salvation, whose life, whose death, his resurrection is recorded for us in the written word, which in turn is called the living and enduring word of God. And the Bible's uh, not only invitation, but command to us is, so crystal clear seek the Lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near now again I don't know who you are maybe every single person in the room is a Christian that would be grand Uh, but if you're not then I hope that this message in particular the end of it um, you will take careful notice of so let me emphasize again as I close just this point that when you die one of these things will be true about you May not be written there, but it will be true. Either you will be with Christ, which is far better, or without Christ, which is far worse. The title tonight was Why Believe the Bible? The answer to the question is because it's the only book in the world which has the solution to human need, God's answer to man's need. And my prayer and the prayer of those who organized these meetings both last night and tonight and tomorrow morning at the breakfast and tomorrow evening and other services on Sunday night uh, also in this town. Uh, the hope and prayer of all those who organized those meetings is that those of you who are Christians will just get a fresh grasp of the centrality and the importance and the integrity and the authority and the trustworthiness of the Bible, and that those who are not will begin to see all of those things and will come to put their trust in Christ, of whom the Bible speaks.